Love is in the air, and there are few things that I love more than a profitable restaurant. What's your plan to ensure that this Valentine's Day is your most profitable yet? Connect with the Yelp for Restaurants restaurant expert to gain access to the tools and tactics you need to have a banner Valentine's Day. Visit restaurants.yelp.com to start planning today. Now here we go. That is kind of a company culture that we've created, owning our mistakes, understanding that we are all going to make them, you know, whether we like to admit it or not. I don't like to admit mistakes, but they happen. And we got to be upfront and open about that. And I think if you can do that, you're able to kind of mitigate how bad the mistakes get because then you get more eyes on it. You're not covering stuff up. Mistakes aren't hidden under the carpet until they get revealed, right? We're actively working to fix them when they happen. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. Chef Jamie Lynch still cooks. It was his skill in the kitchen that afforded him the opportunity to open his first restaurant. But that's not how he scaled to five restaurants across two states. At some point, we no longer work in a restaurant. We work in the restaurant business. In our conversation today, we chart his transition from esteemed chef to acclaimed restaurateur. So I went to New England Culinary Institute up in Vermont. It's no longer around, unfortunately. It was a great school. I would not change that experience for anything. I learned a ton there. The way that school is set up is it's a seven to one or was a seven to one student to chef ratio. So each class was essentially like a shift in a kitchen, depending on whichever class you were in, let's say it was butchery. So it was seven students and a chef butcher, and then you would basically get your hands dirty cutting meat or fish or whatever. And so there was a lot of actually practical experience that I learned through that. But more than that, what I learned was some professionalism. Going into school, I was a savage. I mean, I was a punk rock, drinking, partying, hardcore cook. I'd cooked for years before I attended culinary school. And one of the chefs that I worked for had urged me to go get a legit education in culinary. So, so I gave it a whirl. And so what I did learn the hard way was professionalism, you know, how to look the part, how to act the part, how to show up on time, how to be reliable, how to be thoughtful in my execution of tasks, things like that. And this master chef of France, this guy, Michel Laborn, was the culinary director of the school at the time. It's like 70-year-old master French chef, right? And he was a badass, but also like a really nice guy. He saw something in me. I don't know if it was just the drive, the kind of that culinary need to excel and to succeed. But anyways, he took me under his wing and helped me into my professional career by placing me with chefs like Balud and Michael Mina and these guys that would take no shit and just wouldn't let anything that I threw at them slide, right? They were going to break me down and mold me into a badass. So I learned a lot along the way through school. I think I've got some opportunities that I otherwise would not have had in front of me. I met some mentors that have really helped shape my approach to cooking and food and all that. And that transversed into my professional career in New York, working in those kitchens. 
Now, those kitchens, you learn a lot about the real world. It's not really your skills that are as important as what can the team do. And you're just a piece of the machinery. And those machines don't operate with broken pieces. And so I had to learn very quickly how to become a valuable part of a team to execute a clear vision and anything less than that. And you were just, you know, you were sent packing. So there's a lot of lessons to be learned there. Were there any surprises coming out of culinary school in terms of brass tacks? You're in the kitchens. Oh, I didn't think it would work that way. Or, oh, I thought that the chef would actually cook on the line or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, luckily for me, the chefs that I worked for actually cooked on the line. I did not expect that. I didn't expect Michael Mina to be on the pass every single night, breathing down my neck and threatening my life if I didn't execute. I didn't expect Andrew Carmelini to be on the line if I was getting bogged down on the fish station to like hip check the shit out of me and then start throwing down some saute pans and making it happen. So that was a bit of surprise. I'd like to think that I learned how to be a mentor that way. Like I was really impressed by that. Like that's something that I was like, I want to be that kind of chef. The kind of chef that doesn't let my guys get so far in the weeds, they can't whatever. And we'll not afraid to get your hands dirty. Um, so that was a surprise. But the thing I think that shocked me the most was how fast the pace was. I was a punk rock kid. Like I said, like I was pretty high energy and coming out through school where the tempos measured for the learning apparatus, being in the real thick of it in these like high octane kitchens, man, it was fast. I mean, you have to be hydrated, fed focused, ready to go. I mean, it's like game time, Friday night lights kind of action. It's not uh, for the weak of heart, that's for sure. The definition of chef is changing. And I think it's changed a lot over the last five years, definitely a lot over the last 10 years. For many, chef means cook. For some, it means artist. And more and more, chef is beginning to mean manager, leader outside of culinary. And I'm curious, where did you learn the skills you needed to become a successful business owner and chef? Okay. So to me, I mean, chef, it it encompasses all those things. I think when I opened my first restaurant, that's now Church and Union in Charlotte about 10 years ago, that was my first owner, operator, executive chef gig. I thought chef was head of the kitchen, the creative force, hot shot, (laughs) you know, all that. And I learned very quickly the hard way that that is not the case. You also have to be a businessman and you have to be a numbers guy and you have to be a therapist and you have to be a leader. And now I think more than ever, to me, it means leader, right? It's about leadership. Leadership is, I think, the toughest skill to learn. At least it was for me. I've become, I think, a very excellent leader. I refer to myself in the kitchen or to my team a lot as the spirit animal because I have a lot of young chefs that work under me who are much better managers. They're a little more numbers oriented than I ever was or a little more in control of the costs maybe than I was, even though I was very on top of that. But leadership is really the skill that I pride myself on is getting the most out of the people that work for me without being a total tyrannical mess, which I was early on. So that leadership skill, I think, is the hardest to learn. I came up in traditional French kitchens. You know, they were very aggressive. There was no room for shenanigans or they just didn't take any shit. And the chefs would get abrasive and vocal and sometimes physical. And so that's the leadership or the chef world that I came up in. And so I didn't really have a good... (laughs) mentor for how to become a good leader. 
As far as the businessman side of things, my business partner, Patrick Whalen, was instrumental in that. I had strong culinary and restaurant math understanding when we opened our first venture together, but I didn't really understand. I wasn't able to look at a PL and know that language in a way where the decisions that I would make, how they would affect those numbers on that paper. And he taught me that. And now it's like, it's second nature. And we teach it to all of our chefs. Our sous chefs can rattle off labor numbers midweek and know what their budgets were and where they're at. And that part of the game is something that I think has been left out of, you know, chefs have not given it its due importance. And that's something that was kind of forced on me through my business partners. Um, you know, they, we just wouldn't tolerate people not understanding how the business works. And so I learned a lot of that from him. That's a huge inflection point, right? And that's yeah. the hurdle that I feel like so many of us in the industry can't get over, right? Yep. Because the food is the food. So it costs what it costs and it takes what it takes. Yep. So if it's a 3% margin, but we're executing at a high level, it's fine until the day you go out of business. You yep. know? Exactly. Um, you know, I think the important thing about that real quick is um, about learning that skill and making sense of it is applying it to a language that you understand. You know, and I think that's something that Patrick helped me do. And we kind of went through that process together was like, how do we apply this P&L thing, these numbers and these different categories in this cash to something that I can tangibly touch and that I make decisions and how it reflects. And we kind of went through these exercises and it was brilliant. And so what did it look like practically? So you guys go through the numbers and the goal was immediate profitability, I'm assuming. Yeah. I mean, we want to Right. And you want a menu that reflects profitability. You know, we today. had an interesting model. We were opening in Charlotte 10 years ago and there was no real big restaurant making a splash in that city at that time. And so we were kind of like really highly anticipated, a lot of kind of industry minds coming together to do this really big thing. So our first goal, more than profitability, was to blow people's hair back, like whatever it costs. We knew we were going to lose some money straight out of the gate. And so I would give, for instance, like, okay, team, this is what I think our general blended cost should be for the menu that we're running. And it was pretty high. <laughs> and I was always coming from the place of working for the people I worked for to like try to get as low as possible. How are we able to change this, change that? And Patrick was the one, honestly, that was like, you know what? Get the best beef you can get. I don't care what it costs. If we run 36% on a dish, it doesn't matter. We got to blow people away. And so we did that for a while. <laughs> I said like three months, we were just, we didn't really care about costs. And that's when we took the crash course. It was like, okay, now it's time to reel it in. We've done what we had to do. We've made that initial first impression and now we've got to be sustainable, right? And so that's when we started the exercises of looking at the PL and saying, okay, where are we hemorrhaging money and where do we just need to tighten the screws a little bit? That kind of thing. Did it require innovation? You know, all kitchens run the same, right? Except mm -hmm. that a lot don't now, right? Like people are really right. innovating in interesting ways. Walk me into a professional kitchen that doesn't have two dozen circulators going simultaneously. Um, <laughs> <Right>. So it, <laughs> it's regardless yeah. of what the health department says. Uh, but, it's, yeah, you know, exactly. like, <laughs> if you don't seal the bag, it's not vacuum sealed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you just just leave a hole in the bag and it's not vacuum. There you go. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But we're trying to do old things in a very new way, and it's difficult to do. Did you pull mm -hmm. inspiration from 
other restaurant brands, other industries. When you guys look to say, okay, today's the day that we become a profitable model. This is how we're going to, because you know, there's so many people out there struggling to do the same, right? Mm -hmm. They've got great food, great service, great location, loyal following, and they don't make a dollar. So Mm -hmm. how did you guys turn the corner? We did innovate, but I don't think we innovated in a traditional term, right? Like one way I innovated is I had to look at my menu and say, hey, okay, cool. This menu is breaking my ass, right? Like it's too big. It's too technical. It's too much. To be profitable, we need to do X amount of covers a night. And we're a big restaurant. We're a busy restaurant. We're talking 400 covers a night kind of thing. So I had to innovate my menu. I had to rethink how I was going to approach the cuisine that we wanted to serve and still have it be at a super high level, but be executable in a way where we didn't have to have three pan pickups and we didn't have to have a la minute butchering and slicing of meats and things like that. How do we do that? And for me, that saved us (laughs) because when you're trying to do all that stuff, a la minute, it creates a lot of waste. And I don't think people realize the waste is the killer in a restaurant. You know, if you've got six line cooks that are decent. I wouldn't say like experts, right? They're decent. They can throw down some volume, but maybe they're not the most technical upscale chefs or whatever. And you do a lot of alamanute cooking, a lot of three pan pickups, sautés over here, pan sauces over there. They're slicing meats to order in a high volume, high octane situation. Things go sideways quickly and that creates waste. And if you want to operate at that level, that really high level of excellence, you can't serve stuff that isn't excellent. So that was one innovation and realization that I had to have really fast to say, okay, to do this, the level of food I want to do, I can't do it the way my super fine dining, chefy, interior tweezed out self wants to do it. I have to do it like this. And we had to reinvent that menu. And so that was something that really helped us. Let's talk about the move to Charlotte. So you're coming from a major market into, I don't know what the exact classification is. I would assume that Charlotte is a tertiary market, right? Yeah. So Yeah, it's it's like a middle market. I would assume that there was a lot of confidence going into it, right? How is the culinary scene different there? What are the charming qualities of working in a smaller market? Because, you know, we've seen this mass exodus from Mm -hmm. chefs working in major markets to secondary and tertiary markets. Why? What was the attraction for you and what has the overall experience been like? Well, for me, it was a move by uh, kind of forced move. I was cooking. I was a sous chef at Tocqueville in New York on 15th Street when 9-11 happened. And Mm -hmm. so that was an epic shit show, (laughs) as everybody can imagine. So everything south of 11th Street was considered ground zero. Obviously, people weren't out dining. That wasn't something that was happening after that. So the owner of the restaurant, myself and the team, we just started cooking for rescue workers. And so we just brought big vats of food down to 11th Street, dropped them off, and we did that for a few months. And then I quickly decided about February, I was like, I need to get out of here. I need to go and get out of the city. It was depressing and all that. So one of my best friends that I cooked with in culinary school was from the Charlotte area. And I had been down to visit It's a small city, clean. It's got some Southern charm to it. So I was like, you know what? I threw everything in my Caprice Classic, you know, the one bag of clothes and my uh, lava lamp that I owned and (laughs) drove down to Charlotte and started over. 
And at that time, Charlotte was a steakhouse town. It is a restaurant chain market. There was maybe a handful of chef kind of inspired, chef-driven restaurants, maybe three or four that I knew of. And I went around with my resume, you know, which had Danielle, Andrew Carmelini, Oreo, Aqua, all these like four-star, like excellent restaurants on it. And nobody would hire me. I think I was overqualified. Everybody was like, oh my God, this guy is out for my job. Right. And so it was super frustrating, man. I was like, what? Like I've been busting my ass in the city for years, learning from the best and I can't find a job. This is ridiculous. So I reserved myself to saying, you know what? Fuck them. I'm starting over. I said, I'm going to start line cooking. I'm going to get a job in the best restaurant I can find as a line cook. And I'm going to show these assholes what it's all about. And that's exactly what I did. And I started over line cooking and very quickly people started to notice. They were like, oh shit, this guy's next level. And I did that for a while in Charlotte, just cooking around, helping other chefs kind of open restaurants. I kind of moved up into some managerial roles and things like that until my business partners kind of caught wind of what I was doing and where I was working, who I was working with. And um, reached out to me and said, hey, you know, they were busy operating businesses for other people, making them profitable and said, hey, why not us? They're all from New York as well. They're like, why are we doing this for others? We have a cool idea. We have the drive. We can do this. And they reached out to me and said, hey, is this something you might be interested in? I said, hell yeah. And that is why we got the buzz that we got, is that we were the guys that were doing it for everybody else. And the attractive thing about the South, Charlotte and Charleston, is that they are small markets and everybody knows each other. And the competition is tight, but everybody's friendly. The Charlotte market, I know practically every chef. They're in my cell phone. We get together. We do a lot of events, a lot of charity stuff, a lot of agricultural stuff together. And so it's a market like that where it's super connected. So we can share resources and that makes us stronger. One of the greatest determinants of success in our industry is our restaurants build up. So many of us spend months or years running overtime and over budget on design and construction costs, but it doesn't have to be that way. My friends at SoCal Restaurant Design are experts in the field, and they put together a checklist of things you need to know when building a restaurant. To get access to this free resource, visit SoCalRestaurantDesign.com forward slash full comp. Again, that's SoCalRestaurantDesign.com forward slash full comp. When you look back 10 years ago on the decisions that you guys made when you opened, what would you double down on and what would you change? I would absolutely double down on gambling on myself. I think that's the best thing you can do is if you're making an investment, invest it on yourself. You only have yourself to blame and you can hold yourself accountable. So that would double down on that 100%. One of the things I might change... It would have been nice to have more cash when we went into it. We did the, the, everyone always. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think you're going to want to shoot me when you hear this, but I think we spent a half a million dollars opening our first restaurant. I think it was $500,000. And the rest of it was on favors. It was on friends doing work for us. It was a classic shoestring budget. And man, that will put some years on you, like opening a restaurant that way. So Definitely more capital is something I would change for sure. <laughs> Marketing. Did you guys market aggressively? I mean, it's such a tight knit community. And then how do you keep it relevant for 10 years? 
So one of my business partners, Alejandro Torrio, he's one of the original founding partners, is an old club promoter from New York City. So the dynamic of our group is really spectacular. You've got me with my pedigree and my experience. Patrick Whalen had opened a bar in Hoboken, New Jersey when he was like in his 20s. He'd worked in different facets of the restaurant industry over the years. Um, really a good business numbers kind of guy, strategy type person. And then Alejandro Torrio, the club promoter, is just so juiced in on marketing. I mean, he knows everyone and he knows what gets to people and what gets people attuned to what's going on. So he was instrumental in getting the word out, having the right connections, creating the buzz. So marketing is huge. It's a huge part of how we operate now. From a chef's perspective, though, how do you keep it relevant? Right. Are people still eating the same yeah. food 10 years later? Because it's yeah. you see there are like two schools of thought. Almost nothing changes and people just come back when they come back or almost everything mm -hmm. changes and either it works, you drive more traffic or you go out of business from spending all that money trying. What camp yeah. would you say you fall into? I am a middle path kind of guy. I'm trying to walk the middle path. I've been extreme throughout my life and I think the middle path is the way to go. But the reason I say that is I think we've been able to stay relevant because one of our mantras is to suspend your ego. None of us is the reason for the success, right? It's not necessarily my cooking. It's not necessarily our marketing. It's a combination of everything. And to stay relevant, you have to be able to adapt and you have to be able to change. Now, that said, we have a pretty strict model uh, with Church and Union, but we have a couple other concepts too that we do that are also successful. But the thing that changes is the people leading the kitchens. I obviously can't be in every kitchen at once, but my ethos about food and quality and cooking can be passed down to other chefs. And then their skill set and their inspiration becomes part of the train. And that's why we stay relevant. And I think chefs need to understand that. You need to have some space in your operation for that. And I think that's honestly why we've been able to stay as relevant as we have is because we're constantly bringing up talent and we're acknowledging it and we're empowering it to kind of like fuel the machine. When did you know it was time to scale up? Well, I didn't know. Day <laughs> two. My, my, Day yeah, two. My, I think my business partner knew before we you know, went on our first date, <laughs> before mm -hmm. he was like, hey, chef, you interested? He was like, I'm going to have 30 stores or whatever. I think Pat's vision has always been to have multiple concepts. My entire dream had been to have my own place. Like that was it. And so when we opened Church and Union, the original in Charlotte, the first couple of years, I was just so focused on that. And once it became clear that we weren't going anywhere and that we had succeeded that dream, I had to like say, okay, well, now what? <laughs> Like you got to have something to live for, right? You got to have a dream. You got to have something to aspire to. And I had just realized this lifelong goal. So I had to kind of circle back and say, okay, what's next? And I'm glad I did because our goal now is so much bigger than just the food that we cook. I mean, I'm talking about trying to change the industry now. For many of us, owning one restaurant is having a full-time job mm -hmm. and owning two restaurants is having two full-time jobs and so on and so forth. So the dream is, right, you own your own restaurant and then you have financial freedom and time freedom, right? You own this thing, 
but <laughs> so many times it owns you, right? And you don't have the financial freedom that you wanted. Many of us are paying to work for free and you don't have the time freedom. And so how has your role evolved to suit the needs of five locations regionally while still giving you what you need? Well, luckily, the thing that I need is hospitality and restaurant work. Like, this is the thing that does it for me. And I can thank my dad for that. I mean, I think I get the hospitality gene from him. He's not in the industry. He's just the most hospitable, giving person I know. And so this is that outlet for me. And if that weren't the case, I don't think I would be able to do it. But you're absolutely right. I mean, I don't have a lot of free time. In the time where I'm not working, I'm like fantasizing about food or I'm out eating or I'm scribbling on a napkin, a kitchen layout for a concept I'd like to do. It's, it's so a part of who I am and how I operate that I wouldn't know what to do without it. But that said, to fulfill the goals and the needs is hire good people and to trust them. I've had to learn to trust the chefs that work for me. I've had to relinquish control, which was really hard to do for my baby, you know, to say, to let others make critical decisions and things like that. But that's what you need to do so you don't go crazy. You can easily just get overwhelmed and it's too much for one person to do. And my partnership team is amazing too. I mean, I trust their decision-making. We don't always agree. We bicker and fight like anybody else, but we respect each other more than anything. And we respect each other's expertise in what we do. So whether or not we agree on specific decision-making, we respect each other's expertise and abilities to make calls when that needs to happen. And, and you need to have that to have a multi-unit kind of situation, I think. Or to have a life, you know? I, right. I, I think, yeah, yeah. Be able to right? take a day off and, and just say, hey, whatever happens, make a call, you know? Yeah. You brought up two things that I think are like two huge hurdles in this industry. So the first is delegation, right? Mm -hmm. Because you do it, it blows up in your face. And then you say, well, that was a poor choice. When yep. the poor choice that was made was the individual you delegated to, not the idea of delegation. But we pull it back and we hold it for another six months and then we're at a breaking point again. So then we delegate to someone else. And if that doesn't work, but it's about, talk to me about that. Because I can't imagine that every time you've delegated and every time you've trusted, it's worked out well. But no. I'm sure that you have refined that process over time. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I think it's important to always remember the human element of all of this, right? Is that I make mistakes too. Like I'm not perfect. And the people we delegate to are going to make mistakes. And you have to understand as a business owner and as a leader and as a chef that the higher up the ladder you go, right? Let's say the ownership group is the top of the ladder and then you've got your executives and so on and so forth, your CDCs or chefs, your line cooks. The further up your ladder you go where you allow the decision-making to happen, the more costly those decisions can be. And that's just the way it is. And I think knowing that and understanding it, you don't have to be happy with it. We don't like mistakes. <laughs> you know, like we strive for excellence and we have a very high standard for ourselves. And so we don't have to beat each other up often about mistakes that happen. We're usually the first ones to identify a problem and say, yeah, and this is important to say I fucked up. And we like to take ownership of that stuff because we believe that that's professional and that's responsible. And so if you can do that, 
and we can trust each other. We can trust people to say, hey, you know what? I made a big mistake and this one cost us this. Or we lost a valuable employee over some decisions we made. Well, that's a huge mistake right now. And so we had to be able to own that stuff and say, hey, I fucked up. And so I think that that is kind of a company culture that we've created, owning our mistakes, understanding that we are all going to make them, you know, whether we like to admit it or not. I don't like to admit mistakes, but they happen. And we got to be upfront and open about that. And I think if you can do that, you're able to kind of mitigate how bad the mistakes get. Cause then you get more eyes on it. You're not covering stuff up. Mistakes aren't hidden under the carpet until they right. get revealed, right? We're actively working to fix them when they happen. I want to talk about boundaries. Your mm-hmm. son has mentioned multiple times on your website. You've talked about yeah. your son in press and you've grown this successful business in the industry and maintained enough balance to be present in your son's life. But our industry always seeks to seep in to that time, right? Into that mm. focus. How do you create boundaries around family and the things that matter most to you? I wish that I had. I think my son would argue <laughs> that I've been able to be active in his life as much as he would like and as much as I would like. That's maybe the one regret I have about everything I've done is that I did make a lot of family time sacrifices early on for the business. And that's time that you can't get back. That said, how I handle that is to be completely open and straight up with my kid. And he's even, he's joined the team at one of the restaurants for a while and he's worked in the kitchen. He's worked in the front of the house. And so there haven't been a whole lot of boundaries. I think some of that was him wanting to understand were the sacrifices worth it? What is this all about? How does it work? What's so special about this? And so that was kind of my trajectory. I wish I could get some of that time back, but I think having committed to something that was really important for me to serve others, to create hospitality for others, has infiltrated a little bit into our family life. And I think Max, is he's received some of that hospitality gene. He understands what that was about, what hard work means. And that's sometimes what you need to do to be successful. What are some of the growing pains associated with growth? You guys have five locations now and multiple markets. You've got multiple concepts. What lessons could the folks listening learn from the decisions you've made, good, bad, and otherwise? Man, there's been so many growing pains. I don't even know (laughs) where to start. I mean, I think Probably the one that jumps out the most is that you can't trust everyone. I've made that mistake. I try to see the best in everybody. You know, I'm one of those optimistic people. And there are a lot of people out there that will burn you and they will take advantage of you and they will rob you and they will steal from you. Like that's just a reality. And so you do need to be diligent about the people you trust. You have to have high standards of trust and then you need to be super trustworthy in order to get that. So I think it kind of goes both ways, right? You got to be the example of trustworthiness. You got to do things for others, do what you say you'll do, do it hundred percent. And then also surround yourself by people that do the same. And if you have red flags about people, especially in partnership, man, pay attention to those things because we've been burned by that a couple of times. And so that will not happen again. The restaurant industry is filled with unspoken rules and traditions about how things should be done. How would you like to see our industry turn the tables to create a better future for all of us? I love it. 
I'm glad you asked that question because we are in the throes of that right now. I mean, my group is so active in trying to change hospitality game. I think we touched on it a little bit early on. It's livable wage. I mean, this has to become like no matter what level of cooking or hospitality you are in, whether you are a tasting menu, 20 seat restaurant, or you are a 400 seat juggernaut steakhouse, this industry needs to be a viable career for the people that work in it. Okay. And it being a hierarchy of like fear and terror and like all this has got to stop. People need to feel appreciated. They need to make enough money to be able to have a livable wage, right? To take care of themselves and their families. And they have to have a schedule that like they're able to actually enjoy life. I mean, what other purpose is there to be here? <laughs> Can't take any of this shit with you. You better enjoy it while you're here. So I think some of those views have percolated in our group over the kind of COVID years, you know, as we were trying to sort out how we we're going to survive all this and what kind of group we wanted to be when we came out of it. And so we're making a lot of drastic changes to our model to do that for our group. And Tip the Kitchen is one thing that we're doing. It's an initiative where we ask our guests that if they have excellent dining experiences to consider leaving an extra amount, a separate tip line on our check for the back of the house employees, separate from what they would tip their server. And then we, the ownership group, we match that amount up to $500 a shift per restaurant. And that's shared universally in the back of the house, except for the executive leadership in the kitchen. Any entry-level position in our group makes $15 an hour plus tip the kitchen. And what that has been able to do is allow us to be extremely competitive in the money that people make. And we're sharing that burden with our guests. And so we're not on the hook for all of it because we all know that restaurants is a super tight margin as it is. So we can't just pay everybody $30 an hour. It's just not a reality. But what we can do is we can split the, we, the ownership can take a slightly depreciated profit margin to make sure that our teams are well taken care of. And so that has been a huge success for us. And yeah, so I mean, when people see that we are able to be successful and continue to open successful restaurants in this model, they'll start to do it too. And that will just improve the quality of the workers that we have, the people that are deciding to make hospitality their career. Yeah. And then we're changing ourselves too, how we manage and how we operate. That's Jamie Lynch. For more on The Chef and his projects, visit chefjamielynch.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.